are back. It's at this part of this program that we sometimes do obituaries, and we certainly could reflect upon the passing of Ariel Sharon, or for that matter, Mikhail Kalashnikov. But you know, I can't go there today. Also, when it comes to, I guess you'd say, end-of-life matters, uh, we should talk about the surprising news, surprising to me anyway, that, um, that hospice is now an industry which is led by for-profit companies. I did not know that. Did you? We'll talk about it, but first I have to absorb the piece from last month by Peter Oriski and Dan Keating that appeared in the Washington Post. And and then we'll see what we can say about that topic. One obituary we should mention briefly is the political obituary of longtime Representative George Miller. George Miller announced this week that he's going to retire after a 40-year congressional career that uh, has helped reshape California water, public land, policies, and, well, it's politics in general. Representative Miller is rather topical for our current discussion on water woes in that as chair of the House Natural Resources Committee in the early 1990s, he won praise from environmentalists and infuriated farmers when he, when he redirected California water use through the passage of the Central Valley Project Improvement Act. That act steered more water to fish and wildlife protection. It tightened irrigation deliveries and spawned myriad lawsuits. Allied with uh, Dianne Feinstein in the Senate, Miller also successfully pushed an ambitious 1994 California Desert Protection Act that designated 3.3 million Death Valley National Park and 790,000-acre Joshua Tree National Park, among other provisions. Unfortunately, as senior member of the House Education Panel, Miller worked closely with Republicans to pass the rather disastrous No Child Left Behind education law revisions during the W administration. But it's noted that Miller's voting record has also marked him as one of the House's most consistent liberals. He's earned 100% vote scores from NARAL, the National Education Association, and Defenders of Wildlife, as well as 0% scores from groups further to the political right. We should also note rather proudly that George Miller is a graduate of the law school at UC Davis. And you know, mark my words, we're going to try and bring him on this program uh, before he actually steps down. Maybe after he steps down, we should, but we should have him on one way or the other. We should also perhaps make note of an obituary of sorts for the Japanese population. Young people in Japan are just not reproducing, and their population is getting older fast. In fact, it's uh, estimated that the population is going to drop dramatically. Current government estimates say that by the year 2060... The population of Japan will drop from 128 million, where it is today, down to just 87 million people. Nearly half of them will be over 65. Now, we do have friends over in Japan. We're going to have to ask them about this. Uh, it seems to me that our economic models just just kind of freeze up when we try and explore the possibility of what a nation would do with a declining population. Seems to me our current thinking always focuses on expansion, 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 which is a rather uh, terrible disease which afflicts us here in California. We're clearly running out of water, among other resources, and our population is going to have to level off. And yet, no one seems to want to acknowledge that fact. And people who make lots of money by doing the old-style method of buying some land, building on it, selling it, expansion, 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 want to continue to play that game indefinitely. 
In a way, it's hard to blame them. But as a society, we'd be insane if we let them. And by the way, we should note that uh, the opinion that California's growth, continuing unchecked, would be a catastrophe, is an opinion that doesn't necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But if you start thinking about it, dear listener, I bet sooner or later it's going to become your opinion. Unless, of course, you make your money in real estate speculation or any of the interlinked industries in California, which is to say, I guess, half of them. All right, as long as we're trending toward the stupid file, here's an item we need to revisit. We mentioned on the show last week that uh, the good folks down in Dallas are trying to auction off a permit to hunt an endangered African black rhino. Well, they had that auction last Saturday, and uh, that permit was auctioned off for $350,000. Yes, apparently Steve Wagner, a spokesman for the Dallas Safari Club, which sponsored the closed-door event, confirmed the sale of the permit for a hunt in Namibia. This is the part I just love the most. Ben Carter, described as executive director of the Safari Club, has defended the auction. He said all money raised will go toward protecting the species. Well, I'm, I'm 100% sure that that is just not going to work for at least one member of that species. Carter also said that the rhino that uh, the winner will be allowed to hunt was likely to be targeted for removal anyway because it was becoming aggressive and, and, and threatening other wildlife. Yeah, when there's a rogue rhino out there in the Kalahari, you know, throwing his weight around, getting in trouble, what are you going to do? You're going to call on a guy from Texas with a gun. That's what you're going to do. That'll set things right. As noted in the brief news summary of this item, the auction drew howls from critics, including wildlife and animal rights groups, and the FBI said it was investigating death threats against members of the club. And speaking of fools from Texas with guns, apparently a Texas hunter is now claiming he has shot Bigfoot, and he promises to soon produce the fabled creature's dead body. Rick Dyer, a self-described Bigfoot hunter, said he tracked the beast to woods outside San Antonio, nailed a rack of pork ribs to a tree as bait, and then blasted the 7-foot, 10-inch creature as it fed. Said Dyer... With tears in my eyes, I watched it take its last breath. Yeah, I'm sure he was all choked up after shooting Bigfoot. Wouldn't you be? Now, Dyer has released a photo that he claims shows Bigfoot's face. It says it's the real deal. Skeptics, however, noted that Dyer has previously claimed to have killed Bigfoot back in 2008. And that, uh, oddly enough, the, the body of the... Uh, the animal at that time, I guess you'd say human, hominid at that time, uh, turned out to be a rubber ape costume. And no, we have no information on the possibility that it was Rick Dyer that bought the rhino hunting permit, but we kind of doubt it. All right, and more news from the stupid. We have uh, this, a quote from Ruth Marcus writing in the Washington Post saying, Back in the 1970s, I smoked the occasional joint. So call me a hypocrite, but I'm not one of the millions of marijuana enthusiasts celebrating Colorado's full legalization of weed. The fact remains that the AMA recently deemed cannabis a a dangerous drug, citing research that weed often leads to abuse of other recreational drugs and permanently lowers IQs in teens who smoke it regularly. 
Well, we're pretty sure that's a fiction, although they, they may want to research the teen marijuana smoking of Ruth Marcus and see whether that did some lowering of IQ. Thankfully, somebody sounded a, uh, a high note in nationalreview.com, which is not an organization we often agree with, but Jonah Goldberg writing there said, My recreational drugs of choice are alcohol and caffeine, not marijuana, but Colorado citizens have every right to legalize weed. Now, here's a, a bizarre addendum piece to that. Sergei Kowalski, writing in the New York Times, notes that, uh, that up in Seattle, where um, marijuana has not been given quite the same legal status as Colorado, but they've done like we've done here in California, open to dispensaries. Well, the people that operate such dispensaries are having trouble with the banks. The banks are saying no to marijuana money. Which is sort of amusing if you look at the connections between Wall Street's moneyed corporations and interests and the international drug trade, which, if the truth be told, have been intertwined now for decades, I think actually have been intertwined now for generations. But the piece describes a man up in Washington State who owns five legal marijuana dispensaries, who, when he has to go pay his taxes because he has no bank account in which to put these funds, has to go down with like $50,000 in cash. Said Ryan Kunkel, carrying such large amounts of cash is a terrible risk that freaks me out in a bit because of the fear in my mind that the next car pulling up beside me could be the crew that hijacks us. So we have to play this never-ending shell game of different cars, different routes, different dates, and different times. And I gather that banks are backing off on allowing dispensaries to open up uh, bank accounts uh, because of this continued conflict between federal and state laws. Banks fear that federal regulators and law enforcement authorities might punish them with measures like large fines for violating prohibitions on money laundering, among other federal laws and regulations. Again, if you look into the, the history of Wall Street, And the international drug trade, this is amusing. There's not just gambling going on here, there's money laundering. All right, we should note with with great delight that we saw the Parade magazine, which I've for some reason continued to be a sucker for after all these years, even though there's very little in it that I like anymore. But I did like this piece titled Master of the Universe, describing how uh, with a reboot of Cosmos... Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson wants to take science where it's never gone before. We think this is a great idea. Cosmos was wildly popular back in the 1980s. Carl Sagan did a terrific job of looking at the universe uh, from an astronomer's perspective and sort of uh, making it accessible to all of us. And I hope Neil deGrasse Tyson can do the same. I, I suspect that he will. Noted John Stewart, who repeatedly features him on The Daily Show. It's one thing to be a lauded astrophysicist. It's another to possess a gift for comedic timing. You don't normally get both, but that's Neil. And indeed, uh, we did speak with him here in Radio Parallax some years back. If you never heard that uh, the first time or you want to hear it again, and we think you should, uh, go to the archives at radioparallax.com and click on the appropriate segment, which should be easy to find. Our pledge drive, uh, which is coming upon us in April, is a time to consider your support to community-based stations like this one. We absolutely need your support. Please do what you can to contribute. I want to note in closing that it's not often enough that 
the mainstream media, I guess you could say, takes on a news item and does it just right. Michael Krasny's forum program did so last Thursday, and I want to compliment them for their excellent work talking about a famous burglary back in 1971. Last week, the identities of, uh, of several of the team that, that pulled off this uh, burglary of an FBI office in Philadelphia back in 1971, wherein they stole about a thousand documents, uh, were revealed to be, among others, Ken Forsyth, John Raines, and his wife, Bonnie. They were among eight anti-Vietnam War protesters who broke into the office and left with suitcases full of documents regarding COINTELPRO, a covert program that monitored civil rights groups and anti-war activists, and one that has been brought up quite a bit of late as we're talking about Edward Snowden and snooping on Americans. Said Reigns, now age 80, we did it because somebody had to do it. When you talk to people outside the movement about what the FBI was doing, nobody wanted to believe it. The group broke in on the night of the title fight between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, they then sent documents to reporters who wrote articles that embarrassed the FBI. A massive investigation was launched, but the case was closed in 1976 after none of the burglars were found. Which does make you wonder, perhaps not for the first time, uh, about the FBI's talent in solving crime versus spying on Americans. I gotta know, we do have some FBI advocates that I, that I talk to on a, uh, on a regular basis. And they get mighty tired of me making cracks like that. They assure me that there are many, many crimes, potential terrorist acts that uh, they have thwarted through their vigilance. I hope they're right, but in the wake of this story on COINTELPRO, which I would highly recommend you listen to in full on on Michael Krasny's uh, forum, which I'm sure is available on the archives of of KQED or KQEI, uh, you'll find that to be very educational. Anyway, we appear to be out of time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan from somewhere east of Puerto Rico. And uh, please do tune in next week to hear our report from the Caribbean. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.